CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Hello, dear listeners. This is Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's podcast on medieval and early modern culture. My name is Anna Kinda, and I am here today with Václav Zurek, a researcher at the Center for Medieval Studies and a postdoctoral fellow on Faculty of Arts at the Charles University in Prague. Václav is an expert in the 14th century courtly culture under the reign of the Luxembourgs. Currently, he shifted his focus on the medieval literary sources and manuscript production. It's nice to have you here, Václav. Thank you very much for inviting me. and I'm happy to be here with you. Can you tell us in a few words about your current research project, Transmissions of Knowledge, the Fortune of Four Bestsellers in the Late Medieval Czech Lands? What does bestsellers mean in this context? Of course, the word bestseller is a modern one, but we use it as a metaphor for wider received and read works in Middle Ages. And with our team, we are working on four concrete bestsellers and they fade in the late Middle Ages in Central Europe, generally speaking. But especially we are focusing on medieval Czech lands, so the lands under the Luxembourg reign in 14th and 15th century. How do you feel as a historian on working with literary works? Is it an easy task for you? No, it's not an easy task. It's a challenging task, actually, because uh, as a historian, I'm formed to work with diplomas and uh, chronicles and uh, texts, what historians do. Uh, The literary sources are a little bit uh, different, especially when you are dealing with some works with many manuscripts you have the advantage that you can touch them and you can work with these material sources from the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So you can not only read some nice edition of a Latin work, but you can really read these uh, copies with many mistakes and uh, marginal notes. So you can maybe see the people behind Mm -hmm. these manuscripts. And that's what we are interested in, actually. We are interested in readers, owners, scribes. Who were these people who transmitted the knowledge in medieval Czech lands? That's Mm -hmm. our main question. Are there any special channels of transmission? And uh, that's our question, too. Mm -hmm. And uh, also what we want to contribute to is the generally speaking the cultural history of given region of let's say Czech lands under Luxembourg from half of 14th century until the the end of uh, 15th century when mm-hmm. early print uh, changed a lot the situation in the yeah. transmission of knowledge of course yeah what did you find in the manuscripts what were like the signs that told you things about the makers and the scribes. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, what uh, what uh, is not uh, so surprising, but it's always nice to see it. It's uh, there are many readers or tools and uh, comments on the works, like the scribe who finished the the copy uh, of a Latin work. He wrote there some 
uh, vernacular comment like uh, I'm happy to be at the end and now I'm going to <laughs> drink a beer because it's over. <laughs> it's always the, uh, nice to see it. <laughs> Actually, the, the human face of mm-hmm. the medieval scribe uh, production. Mm-hmm. The other thing is uh, that uh, we can find some comments on the text. So the reader has found something interesting and he put a note on the margin. Look at this passage. It's really interesting or it's surprising mm-hmm. or I know where it, where it is from, even mm-hmm. if it's not quoted. Ah, so it's bragging about their knowledge. And what do you think the role of these manuscripts was in this uh, late medieval Czech society? Yeah, that's the also our, our focus. They are very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. Because we are dealing with bestsellers, we call them like this, but, uh, we have these tens of manuscripts, let's say. Without this uh, number, it's not possible to do the, the, this type of research. And if you have this, I'm working with... Uh, 30 manuscripts, it's very heterogeneous. You have nice, expensive uh, manuscripts mm-hmm. which were made surely for someone rich mm-hmm. or important, like uh, some high member of the chapter of the Prague, uh, mm-hmm. Prague Cathedral, so on, or some archbishop. And you have manuscripts that are cheap without any Embellishments. Yeah, embellishment, uh-huh. any, any liminals, uh, they use only the one ink. <laughs> yeah. And uh, nothing nice is there, uh-huh. but it could be cheap. Yeah, and yeah. it could be useful too. And it's uh, heterogeneous also from the point of uh, view of the codicology. Because uh, a codicological context is also interesting when you are dealing with some concrete text, what text were in the same manuscript copied with this text mm-hmm. so one manuscript would contain multiple books actually yeah could you yeah, say yeah, that? yeah 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 uh-huh. that's the case actually sometimes uh you should be careful because these texts were put together in 16th or 17th century ah. but you can uh, you can see it if you are looking at and so that's also the the point that you should go to libraries and work with these manus- manuscripts in hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there are compilations of texts which were made already in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. and you can see them from the codicological colleg- point of view. And sometimes you are ha- lucky to have a medieval catalog where it's written what is there, and you have also the manuscripts nowadays, so you can see that it was together. And then it, when when it was gathered in Middle Ages, it should be for some reason, for some mm-hmm. reader or mm-hmm. owner who wanted these texts together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they are even texts uh, copied by one scribe, different text by one scribe, one mm-hmm. scribal hand. And then again come up the, the question why these texts were together. Mm-hmm. Can, now that we've talked about like the circumstances, can you tell us about the texts themselves? Why do you think they became medieval bestsellers? I start with uh, the general choice of our project. Mm-hmm. We have four works in our focus. The first one is Secretum Secretorum, a mm-hmm. pseudo-Aristotelian work translated from Arabic to Latin, 
twice and widespread in all Europe. You can find it in every bigger library in Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. We have now more than 500 copies actually surviving. That's a lot, yeah. yeah, that's a lot. And Secretum Secretorum, the secret of secrets, mm-hmm. the main point is that knowledge is a secret mm-hmm. or there is no the the basic idea is that there is a secret knowledge which could be known only for the important people like mm-hmm. rulers mm-hmm. it was uh, copied a lot in the context of uh, mirrors for princes even though the text itself is not only about ruling it's also about medicine how to stay healthy uh, it's a, a lot about uh, alchemy and oh. that's the first text the second is uh, el sidarium and uh, text quite known for its uh, explanation of uh, christian belief in a easy way it's a, it's a dialogue christianity for beginners yeah christianity <laughs> for beginners it's a it's a dialogue between a master and a pupil and uh-huh. the pupil asks the basic question like who is the god how we know it and so on and how, how these things are happen around us mm-hmm. and the master explain it in a really easy way mm-hmm. it was then translated even in many vernaculars actually and was one of the point of our project the the choice of our text was that uh, it should be also translated into medieval czech mm-hmm. to prove the popularity of the text mm-hmm. that's the second one the third one is the chronicle of martinus polonus widespread chronicle about emperors and uh, popes chronicle is quoted in late middle ages literally everywhere sometimes you can see it sometimes it's quoted like mark polonus said mm-hmm. etc mm-hmm. and sometimes you don't know it but it was a uh, one of main source for historical knowledge mm-hmm. in late middle ages and the fourth one is mine and it, this is uh, the treatise about game of chess from Jacobus de Cesolis, a Dominican monk from end of 13th and beginning of 14th century. This is very interesting text for me. It's a treatise about game of chess, but it's not really about chess, about playing chess. If you don't know how to play chess, you can't learn it from this text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cesolis come up with an idea that... Uh, the pieces of chess represent the society as mm-hmm. it functions. So there is a king and queen. This allegory is quite obvious. Mm-hmm. Then there is bishop, but who represents for Chesol is not a clerk, but judges. Mm-hmm. Then you have knight, and it should be the knight, the, the power. Mm-hmm. And the rook should represent the king where he couldn't be. Mm-hmm. Just like in the game of chess. But the most original part is the the explanation of common pieces. They are not the same. They are eight commoners, Mm -hmm. eight pieces, and each of them should represent one group of profession. Cesolis lived in a northern Italian town, so so his idea was influenced by the reality of northern Italian towns at the end of the 13th century. So you have there the farmer, the important part of the medieval society, of course. But then you have blacksmith, town officer, doctor, apothecary, 
scribe, etc. Mm -hmm. But what is for the reader interesting in the book from Chesolis is that he explain all these pieces with short stories from ancient world. Wow. He use a, a lot of exemplar from ancient Rome and Greece mm -hmm. and partly from the Bible to explain what each piece of uh, chess, what kind of mo moral they should follow. Mm -hmm. Do these ancient stories come from actual ancient sources or were they invented in the medieval times and had ancient characters, so to say? They were not invented. The author doesn't work really with authentic uh, works, literary sources from uh, ancient Rome and Greece. He used the 12th century works like the Polycraticus from of Salisbury, mm -hmm. but the stories are authentic, I mean, founded in the literature. Mm -hmm. And they are also common places of general knowledge of ancient mm -hmm. world. I see. And what did the readers look for in these works? Why did they read them? This was my question at the beginning, and I'm trying to answer it now after three years of working with these manuscripts. After the reader's tools like register, major notes, we can see that readers in late medieval Bohemia were looking for these short stories. Mm -hmm. So they are very often... Na written names in margins, so you can find really quickly stories about Alexander, mm -hmm. or they are the morals, these, uh, the virtues are written in margins, and you can find some short story about chastity. Mm -hmm. And uh, the register is also made in this way, so you can see that this was interesting for medieval reader in Bohemia. Not mm -hmm. the game of chess, but mm -hmm. these short stories. The exemplar and uh, moralities about virtues. Were these works always around in Bohemia? Or or did they appear at a certain period? No, these uh, works uh, appeared in the second half of 14th century with the foundation of the university mm -hmm. and with the growing number of people who could read, mm -hmm. have the time to read, and were interested in the uh, ancient world, mm -hmm. in something what we can call classical knowledge. Mm -hmm. But what we can see also is that uh, they were people looking for how to learn easy about uh, ancient uh, world. And uh, they were looking for short stories, mm -hmm. maybe for entertaining, maybe for learn it easily, because they wanted to quote it somewhere. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to go and read Cicero, but they want to show off that they are able to speak about the Roman emperors, for example. Mm -hmm. And were these manuscripts mainly in Latin? So could they read Latin? Or were the majority of them translated to the Old Czech? The general situation of uh, Chesolis is that it was uh, in Latin, it was written in Latin and widespread in Latin, mm -hmm. but there are more than eight translation vernacular in Europe, even in Sweden and Scotland, of course in French, France and uh, Germany. And there is a Czech translation, which is rather the adaptation than a translation, because mm -hmm. it was translated, but the translator, a prolific 
uh, translator from 14th century, Tomáš of Štítne, left out almost 80% of short stories from ancient times. So apparently he was not interested in this part of the text, but he was interested in the part which we can call the mirror for princes, who should show how the king and noble people should behave to stabilize the society mm -hmm. at the end of mm -hmm. 14th century. I have one more question about these books. So you said that these were meant for people who were sort of uh, newcomers to the world of literature, so to say. How would you compare the, the physical books to modern books? Were they harder to read than modern books or easier to read? Was there any thing in the book that would help the readers understand the text better? Yes, of course, they are features of the text. They can help the reader, like the headings in uh, other ink, mm -hmm. especially red one, uh, so you can find quickly where the other chapter begins. Sometimes they are underlined interesting parts of of the text, like mm -hmm. authorities. When the Valerius Maximus is quoted and Valerius is underlined, mm -hmm. so you can quickly find the quotation. But it's the same with the marginal notes. Mm -hmm. It's just a different feature to help the reader uh, with the quick orientation in the text. And that could show us that the text was not meant to, to be read from mm -hmm. the beginning to the end, but to the use, everyday use of some preacher of st or student who need to find really quickly some information about concrete person or about this virtue. Sort of as a reference book. Yeah. Uh, a medieval Wikipedia, if you will. <laughs> maybe, maybe a handbook for um, students, teacher, preacher. Mm -hmm. Do you personally have a favorite manuscript? out of the 30-something that you've been working with? Yeah, well, everybody likes the illuminated manuscripts because of they course. are nice and they show us more from the medieval reality. Mm -hmm. The specialty of this uh, work of Jacobus de Cesolis is that each figure, each chapter about uh, chess pieces starts with a description of the figure. Mm -hmm. what he had in left hand and right hand and so on. So illuminators in the Middle Ages could easily, after this description, mm -hmm. made illumination. So there is a standard set of illumination if in, let's say, 10% of manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And one of them is in Prague Castle, Metropolitan Chapter Library, mm -hmm. and he's really nice. Why is it nice? What is nice about it? Is it colored and with golden leaf and lots of details? What do you like about it? Or is it more no. about how it was drawn? No, it was drawn really in a nice way. So mm -hmm. it's interesting because it's not in a nice manuscript. Mm -hmm. So it's expensive text within the manuscript, which is not really nice, and but which was brought together in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. What is interesting uh, about these illuminations may be that the eighth piece of among commoners, this is a piece of uh, someone who is not really working and spent his time in, in a pub. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it is also a part of the society and Cesaris knew it. And in this uh, on this illumination, 
uh, there is a man playing dice on uh-huh. the illumination and in the margin there was a woman maybe prostitute <laughs> illuminated on the margin she should be together with him mm-hmm. in this society mm-hmm. because otherwise there is only the queen the only female figure oh, and the others are men are men yeah uh, medieval word you thank you now we will take a short break and return in a few minutes We'd love to know what you think of the program, so join CU Medieval Radio on Facebook and leave a comment. Welcome back. Before we go on to our next topic, your other research, I wanted to ask you about what is codicology and how does it help you as a historian to deal with these manuscripts? Codicology is a science about medieval manuscripts and books. Codicologists could tell us uh, what kind of scribe have write this text, can discern scribal hands. He knows a lot about binding of uh, medieval manuscript if they were put together in the Middle Ages or in 19th century. Afterwards, what kind of material there was used, if it's paper or pergamon. Mm-hmm. And also that's what is very important is the question of datation of manuscripts. Mm-hmm. You can date manuscripts after watermarks mm-hmm. when the paper is used, mm-hmm. but not when pergamon is used. You can date after the script, mm-hmm. actually, but it's not very accurate, like the second half of 14th century could be mm-hmm. dated. Mm-hmm. And also... If the manuscript was meant for personal reading or if it was more for presentation, mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. like a gift for somebody important. Oh, I see. And uh, well, that's it. Yes. Yeah, and how can it help to historian? It's yes. uh, the very important information. The question is if uh, the historian working with manuscripts should be able to do part of this uh, task mm-hmm. himself mm-hmm. but sometimes you need the uh, help of a real of codicologist <laughs> and uh, what is also important to say that they are many codicologists and they are working hard mm-hmm. and uh, they are preparing for us pure historians the catalogs of medieval libraries mm-hmm. where these basic information are set so it's mm-hmm. very helpful And one more short question. How does one become a codicologist? What do you have to study? Usually, do they come from like art history courses? Or do they come from book restoration courses? Or are they just historians who have a particular interest in this and they educate themselves? It's different in different countries, actually. Mm -hmm. There is a set of uh, so-called auxiliary historical sciences Mm -hmm. and codicology is one of them i see like paleography epigraphy and so on Mm -hmm. and in czech republic for example you can study auxiliary historical sciences Mm -hmm. together with history and nowadays is always to the auxiliary historical sciences are always together with archival studies i see In Germany is the same. There is a tradition of 
health uh, historic uh-huh. Wissenschaften and uh, they are even professor of this auxiliary historical sciences in Germany. But uh, you can, I think, become a codicologist if you start with history and then you just love these medieval manuscripts. Mm-hmm. You fell in love with uh, the manuscripts and you become codicologist. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. I would like to ask a little bit about your previous research, your dissertation topic. As I understood, it was mainly about the figure of Charles IV, the emperor of Holy Roman Empire, of course. I love him because he contributed very much to the late medieval culture of Prague, and I am particularly fond of Prague cathedrals. But but what was your interest in his character and in the culture that he built around himself and in his country. Charles IV is part of heyday of the late medieval culture in in Bohemia. Mm-hmm. And he's an important figure even nowadays for historical consciousness of uh, people in Czech Republic. I started with him uh, with the analyze of his uh, coronation order which is quite interesting. Because, Can you tell us what yeah, the coronation yeah, order uh, is? F- yeah, there is a genre in medieval literature. Mm-hmm. It begins as a liturgical tool. Mm-hmm. The order, how the right coronation should be organized. Mm-hmm. Who should say what, when mm-hmm. the archbishop take the sword and give it to the king and what the king said mm-hmm. and so on what is sung, etc. There are many coronation order in all over Europe, but not so many. Mm-hmm. But we can compare them. Mm-hmm. There is a strong tradition in France, mm-hmm. uh, French coronation order. And uh, with 13th century or during the 13th century, these orders became regional, specific for specific kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it's not no more than liturgical genre, but it became a source of political thought of concrete mm-hmm, kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's the case for the coronation order of Charles IV. Charles IV spent seven years as a young boy at the court of a uh, king of France, mm-hmm. where he saw surely in 1328 the coronation of the first Valois king, mm-hmm. Philip VI. And then he came back to Bohemia, became the king of Bohemia and the king of Romans. And he tried to make a new reduction of the coronation order. The first one for Czech kings, I believe. And it's interesting to see what is put there in this coronation order from his politics. He -hmm. tried very hard to legitimate the Luxembourg power in Bohemia. He was the second from the Luxembourg dynasty ruling, and it was quite clear that he is a legitimate king. But he tried to assure this legitimation. And part of the legitimation was that he was a son of last princes from the Przemyslit dynasty, the dynasty who reigned in Bohemia since the since ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, he tried it to show this legitimation for example, with the very beginning of the coronation. At the beginning of the coronation, the day before, the future king should go from the Prague castle in mm-hmm. procession to the Visegrad, mm-hmm. place of memory of Przemyslit era. And 
then come back to the Prague castle and wait during the night to the coronation. But why is it in the order? Because Vyšehrad was an important place in Charles' time, but why to go in the procession through the whole city? And my answer, what I found in a chronicle of Příbik Pulkava of Radenin, one of uh, author of, of the Charles' uh, court, is that he should venerate there at the Vyšehrad two objects of the memory of Přemyslit era, boots and, and a bag, because there is a old legend of the first ruler from the Przemyslit dynasty mm -hmm. that he was a plowman taken by Princess Libuše to become the first prince of, mm -hmm. of Bohemia. And according to, the, to this legend, he took with himself these boots and uh, the bag. Mm -hmm. And when they are asking him, why are you taking these things that you will become a, a ruler of Bohemia, you will not need them, mm -hmm. he said, I want that my offspring knows that we are from the common people. Mm -hmm. And this story is in the chronicle from mm -hmm. the Charles' time. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, there was a part of this mem premislit memory which should be venerated during the coronation. It's just one of the examples. The other one is the veneration of St. Wenceslas, the most important saint in, in Bohemia. There is a St. Wenceslas sword, mm -hmm. St. Wenceslas crown used uh, during the coronation. There is a St. Wenceslas chapel mm -hmm. uh, in the cathedral from where the holy oil should be brought for the coronation. Can you tell us who was Wenceslas originally and why is he important to check yeah, out? It's a Duke of Bohemia from the mm -hmm. 10th century who was killed by his brother and became very quickly a saint patron of uh, Czechs. Mm -hmm. And as a member of the Przemysli dynasty, he became also the patron of the ruling family. And during the 12th century, he became an eternal ruler of Bohemia who mm -hmm. gave just for some time the rule to concrete actual re uh, ruler. I see. But he is the eternal. And uh, Charles IV used this idea of eternal ruler in his idea of the patron saint of the dynasty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because he ordered the new crown, mm -hmm. which became the crown for Czech kings forever, even Today is there. We are not a kingdom anymore, but there is a... There is a you still have the crown. Yeah, we, we still have the crown. And uh, the crown was called St. Wenceslas crown. Mm -hmm. And it was donated to St. Wenceslas. And it was used only for coronation. And the, the time it should be on the school of, uh, of mm -hmm. St. Wenceslas mm -hmm. in the cathedral. So we were talking about the coronation order and what the different parts of this ceremony symbolized. I wanted to ask, maybe it's a very difficult question to answer, but who was this ceremony meant for? So the, who were the, the audience? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. If you want to have an idea how the coronation could look like in the Middle Ages, you can go to YouTube and there is a coronation of Elizabeth II from the 53, I mean, think. And they are like 60% of the of the coronation order is the same for the Charles IV in 14th century and Britain, Great mm -hmm. Britain in 12th century. But there is one big difference. The church is much bigger. Mm -hmm. 
So the audience is bigger. If you think about cathedrals and churches in 14th, 13th, 14th century, some of them are quite big. But the reality was slightly different. The, the cathedral of St. Vitus was uh, started to build in 1344, so three years after Charles was crowned. So there was not a cathedral. Yeah. Not at all. There was old basilics uh, and ruined somehow yes. slowly and built a new uh, cathedral, but it was finished in 20th century, so it was not finished. And in the in churches before Trident, yes. there was always a wall yes. between the... The choir and the nave. Yeah. So that's the question. Who can actually see yeah, what the coronation? How many people can see uh -huh. How many people can hear yes. what was sung or what uh, was said? It was everything in Latin. Well, in Charles' coronation order, there are two Czech passages. Mm -hmm. One is the, the acclamation of the people. It's a fiat in Latin, but it, in order it uh, should be shout in Czech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Radi, radi, radi. Right? Mm -hmm. We are glad to. Mm -hmm. And the second one is the old uh, religious song which should be sung during the entronization i see clerics should sing laudamus etc mm -hmm. and uh, the non-clerics should sing hospodine pomiluine which is an old uh, song mm -hmm. in czech actually the oldest one and connected to premislit era so Who was the public? Uh, we don't know exactly, but we know from some sources from 15th century, for example, that people wanted to go there and cannot and complain about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. protection for the mm -hmm. people going inside. But the part of the medieval coronation was always some kind of procession through the city mm -hmm. that everybody could see the the king mm -hmm. and maybe that's always behind this idea of the procession from Prague castle to Vyšehrad and back because i believe that it was not written for coronation of charles the fourth it's too much uh, complex and well done and it was in hurry in 14 uh, 1347 so i believe that it was written after as a part of a legacy Mm -hmm. of Charles IV for his son because the new town of Prague was founded 1348 and in the town of coronation of Charles IV the Charles Bridge was not there mm -hmm. because the old bridge was destroyed by water high water in 1942 and the new bridge was built at the end of the time of Charles IV I believe that it was meant to procession through the whole city The new town also until the the Vyšehrad and over the stone bridge back to Prague Castle. What is a little bit uh, paradoxical is that finally Charles the Fourth has go through this procession when he was dead, because uh, mm -hmm. there is a funeral procession with his body going exactly this this way. So mm -hmm. they took him from Prague Castle through the old town, new town, to the Vyšehrad, and then through some important churches in uh, medieval Prague. And after four days, he come back to Prague cath Cathedral mm -hmm. for the funeral. It's a nice framing, I think. So 
he should begin this at the beginning of his rule and he did this at the end of his rule. What else did you study about how Charles IV tried to legitimize his power? Did he do things outside of Prague? How did he behave as a patron of the arts? Actually, he did a lot for his legitimacy. Of course, lots of these things are done in Prague as his imperial seat. Not so much elsewhere. He founded some castles and altars in the Roman Empire. For mm-hmm. instance, the altars of St. Wenceslas to venerate his Czech patron saint. You maybe know that uh, Charles himself was born and baptized as Wenceslas. And he changed his, his name when he came to the Parisian court. Mm-hmm. During the confirmation, he became Charles. And because of the idea of uh, Charlemagne, the first medieval emperor, he used only the name Charles during Mm -hmm. his Mm -hmm. reign. But sometimes, when it was appropriate, he reminds people that he was also a Wenceslas. He had a double identity. It was like uh, to have a double patron saint. Mm -hmm. There is a sermon delivered during the coronation of Charles IV in Prague. And in this uh, sermon, there is explicitly said that he is Wenceslas as well as Charles, because mm-hmm. he is Saint Wenceslas and as well as Saint Germain, that mm-hmm. these two patron saints are in him or looking after him to be more accurate. And that's also interesting. He helped to found the Saint Germain, mm-hmm. or the Germain is an important figures in medieval culture generally. But uh, his uh, status of saint is rather problematic. Yeah, was he actually yeah, he ever was, made a saint? Yeah, uh, Charlemagne uh, was a promoted saint during the reign of uh, Friedrich Barbarossa mm-hmm. by the antipope. Uh-huh. So, from the very beginning, it was a problematic and for popes and for papal curia it was he was not a saint actually mm-hmm. he was venerated even before as a founder in some southern french uh, monasteries mm-hmm. for example so there are local venerations of uh, saint Germain. and when uh, charles the fourth come with this idea of the veneration of saint Germain generally the mm-hmm. pope was against mm-hmm. but he enable him to found a monastery of St. Germain in Prague. There is a monastery of Our Lady and St. Germain mm-hmm. called Karlov, nowadays Augustinians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, from this Prague monastery, there was an- another one, a chapter actually founded in Ingelheim in Germany. And Ingelheim is uh, the place where, according to Godfrey of Viterbo, Germain was born. Mm-hmm. So there is a chapter founded from Prague, directed from Prague, with the veneration of Saint Germain, with the school of Saint Germain. That's one of the uh, examples. So Charles IV was prolific and passionate collector of relics. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of these relics are teeth of Saint Germain. He is disposed of three of them at le- least, mm-hmm. and uh, one of them he sent to French king, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. his nephew, Charles V of Valois, with a letter 
then they are both Charles's and there is the, the third one, the Saint Charlemagne and so on. And from this time onwards, we can see even on the French court, there is a growing veneration of Saint Charlemagne. Mm -hmm. I dare to say that it was also a uh, partly influence of Charles IV, that uh, the, someone like Charlemagne, he was very important for French kings from the very beginning of the kingdom, but he was not seen as, as a saint. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the end of 14th century, he was venerated even as a saint. If I remember correctly, even from my art historical studies, we were studying Karstein Castle, and there's a family tree of Charles IV there, if I remember correctly. And it had Charlemagne towards the beginning. So somehow he wasn't only a spiritual great-grandfather, but an actual great-grandfather as well. Yeah, but I should say that Charlemagne was very popular for every fictive genealogy in the Middle Ages. And you can find him literally in every genealogy. Mm -hmm. He should be there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he very often begins the the genealogy. But what uh, this uh, so-called genealogy of Karlstein, it's not really a genealogy, it's much more. At Karlstein there was a line of rulers going back to, to Noe. And there are biblical figures, then there are fictive persons from Troja, Priamos, and then it goes through this idea of uh, Trojan origin of French kings through Merovingian to Carolingian with Charlemagne, of course, and then it's going until the Charles IV. And it's kind of a genealogical fiction through time. So it's all the people who have been good rulers of their people. Okay, let's take another short break. We are back. In this short break, you were telling us about a medieval mystery in Karstein Castle. Can you explain us what it is about? It's good that the historians could always find something which is not easy to explain or which resists the explanation. And one of these is a group of people painted on a wall on the stairs when you are going in the Karstein castle up to the chapel and there are figures, especially female figures, painted on the wall and we dispose even a very similar copy from the Middle Ages in one manuscript in Wolfenbüttel. Mm -hmm. And so there are these figures, female but also male figures, with many crowns on their heads, two or three. We know that uh, the grandfather of Charles IV, it was uh, the Czech king Wenceslas II, he became the Czech king and then the king of Poland. So he could wear two crowns. The son of Wenceslas II was Wenceslas III, who became the king of Hungary under the name Ladislav V, just for a very short time and he couldn't get the legitimacy finally. Mm -hmm. But theoretically, after the death of his father, he could call himself the Triple King of Central Europe, mm -hmm. <laughs> let's say. So Poland, Bohemia, Poland, Bohemia and, Hungary. and Hungary. So this uh, Visegrad King. And uh, he could be the person who is there with three crowns on mm -hmm. his head. 
but it doesn't make sense together. Mm -hmm. There are too many females around and they are even coat of arms who can help us. Mm -hmm. But again, it's confusing. Some of them could be identified with Wittelsbach. Some of them could be identified with Czech kings. But the other way, uh, others are rather confusing and we can't really explain what this concrete line age should represent. Mm -hmm. And without the good explanation of the pergament copy, we mm -hmm. couldn't understand the these uh, figures on the wall on the stairs of Karlstein. So there is a mystery what we got from the Charles mm -hmm. IV's time until today. Mm -hmm. It should be related to him and his family, but we don't know how at this point. It, I it, see. it, it makes sense that it, the whole Karlstein is actually, from the point of view of uh, history of art, it's very complicated system of representation of the dynasty himself as a chosen one to became the, the emperor, so the most important person in the world. So even this uh, group of figures on the wall should represent something related to his position or his family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we are heading this chapel, the most important part of the whole Karlstein, uh, the treasury of, of Imperium was uh, hidden, so it couldn't be something non-important. <laughs> That's not an option. But we can't really understand. Mm -hmm. And what do the female figures look like? So are they noble women? Yeah. They are or they could are... they be biblical figures or something? Not very likely. Not very likely. They uh -huh. are definitely noble figures and they look like uh, queens mm -hmm. or part of a uh, family. And they are in the veneration position, so uh -huh. there should be some explanation, some signification linked to the chapel. Okay, thank you. And lastly, I think I would like to ask, so what do you think about the connection between your two topics? So you're dealing with kind of with the same geographical area, with the same time frame. So, for example, what do you think the effect of Charles IV was on the literary production at the time, did he act also as a pattern of, of books and uh, book production in, in the late medieval Bohemia? Yeah, he played an important uh, role, not only as a patron of the university, but it's fair to say that he was not patron in the sense that he paid a lot of money for uh, university of, or churches or monasteries. He founded a lot of monasteries but and gave just some money and the rest is, was always on the monastery too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's the case also of the university. He founded the university in 1408, but there was not enough money and people to flourish from mm -hmm. the university. And when in Austria and Poland, they come up with uh, their universities. So there was a real concurrence for Prague University. Mm -hmm. And the Prague University was at the risk of uh, end of their existence, actually. He founded finally the college for professors and started the real life of the university. Mm -hmm. But he was not someone who wanted to pay a lot of money for his projects. It's the same partly for the literary production we know that he was very interested in the re religious literature, but not some Devocio Moderna, it's much more traditional mm 
mm-hmm. way of literary thought. And also, and that's the part of his politics actually, is uh, he was very interested in history, mm-hmm. in historiography. So he, we know that he asked four people to write a history of Bohemia. Some old history from the very beginning until his time, but also a history of his uh, reign. Mm-hmm. So he was interested in legitimacy through history, the use of history, use of the past for the uh, legitimation of his time, mm-hmm. of his uh, reign. But he was also interested in his image afterwards. I see. And he was quite a good in it because it works. Even nowadays, when you are talking with people in Czech Republic about Charles IV, you can hear the very same what was written on his court in 14th century. Mm-hmm. A good, wise, pious ruler who founded a university, built a bridge, stone bridge, called nowadays after him. So he's very present. And one of the reasons for this good image is actually the historiography of his mm-hmm. time, who was then copied in other works, and the image stayed the same until, well, now. Uh, and also, if we talk about vernacularization of the literature, about beginning of Czech written literature in mm-hmm. 14th century Bohemia, his role could be important. There are no clear links or very few. But we know, for instance, that the important role was played by a monastery of, of Slavonic monks in uh, Emmaus, so-called mm-hmm. Emmaus today, in this monastery where these uh, monks uh, copied a lot of texts in Czech in the glagolitic uh, uh, script, but the texts were in, in Czech. And we know from the Foundation Charter that uh, Charles IV paid one scribe for, for five years, I think, uh, to copy every literature needed to build a library for this for this monastery. So there was some kind of official support. Mm-hmm. And also the symbolical meaning of the vernacular Mm-hmm. As I said, in the coronation order, uh, the vernacular was seen much more symbolical mm-hmm. than even in the everyday life. We have no charter in Czech from his time. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of German charters. We have some French charters, a lot of Latin charters, of course, but no Czech. Mm-hmm. This started, the, the use of the language, of the Czech language as an administrative language, started uh, with his son, Wenceslas IV. But there were some support because of the symbolical meaning of the vernacular. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And before we say goodbye, I wanted to ask you about your future plans. Where do you see your projects going and what will you do in the next year? Will yeah. you come back to visit us at CU? Of course, I would like to come back. And now I'm... Uh, working in a project, so I'm at the very end of this project about uh, Jakobus de Cesolis and the bestsellers in Bohemia, and now I am in a project about conflict and institutionalization of the conflict in medieval Bohemia, you know, with the Hussite wars and the mm-hmm. life afterwards, we try to analyze how the society deal with conflict as a permanent state. 
how the conflict became peace-like existence. Mm -hmm. Like the people who are, who begins in a war against uh, some, or how the the civil war can become a normal existence, let's say. Mm -hmm. And what I'm mm -hmm. doing is analyze of the role of the king in this. So how the king could become a pacifier of the situation in, in the kingdom. That's my plan. Okay, thank you for coming today. Thank, thank you very much for the invitation. Mm -hmm.